Welcome to the Standpoints Podcast, our space for living and loving Blackness. Today we are recording on location at the Solitude Fraction site for our special edition of our Standpoint series dedicated to making all Black Lives Matter. The Solitude House is the oldest building on the Virginia Tech campus, which was part of the plantation from 1830 to 1850, and the Fraction House was the home of enslaved people who worked for the Preston family that started the Virginia Tech campus. For this episode, we have here our guest host, Dr. Shannon Bell. Shannon is the co-instructor with me for the Making All Black Lives Matter course, and this week we are in the middle of her module, which is on Afrolatcha. Thank you for having me, Dr. Baldwin. This is Shannon Bell. And Afrolatcha is a term coined by Kentucky poet Frank X. Walker to celebrate the important and far-reaching cultural contributions that African Americans have made to the Appalachian region and to contest the false notion that Appalachia is a monolithically white space. And today I am thrilled that we are hosting Earl White, Fiddlin' Earl White from Floyd, Virginia, and Adrian Davis for a two-part event. Um, the first part was a talk that Earl White gave this morning on Black Americans and Appalachian old-time music, then and now. And this afternoon, we had a noontime performance by Earl White and Adrian Davis. The recording of their performance is available online, and you can find the link to their performance in the podcast description. So we had a really great day today with Earl and Adrian. They played some really good music for us and they had did an amazing classroom presentation for our students in the Making All Black Lives Matter class. And today we are also had this really great conversation for the podcast and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. So thank you, Earl and Adrian, for... Um, being a part of Standpoints. And this episode, of course, we're talking about Afrolatcha. Particularly, we're talking about old-time music um, and fiddling and all of the amazing music that um, our our audience is going to hear eventually as part of the, the, um, the podcast. And so what I want to ask, first of all, is for you to tell us a little bit about who you are, who is Earl White, who is Adrian, how did you get involved in this music? And also, I want to hear a little bit about you, too. I'm just being a little nosy. Like, how did you come to meet? And yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's a long story. And who is Earl White? I'm still searching for myself. But I can tell you who I am now. <laughs> um, so I um, grew up in Newark, New Jersey and spent most of my summers, uh, not most, but all of my summers on my grandparents' farm in eastern North Carolina. And what I noticed when I was growing up, I mean, there wasn't a lot of TV, but there was radio. And one of my favorite commercials on the radio was, Yahoo! Mountain Dew. <laughs> it was a it was a commercial for Mountain Dew, and what followed that that yell was banjo and guitar. And it was I later found out it was Earl Scruggs and uh, Lester Flat. But I, every time I heard it, you know, I would just be up and I, I'd just jump up and down with it. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Decided to go to college in Eastern North Carolina. I went to Eastern um, East Carolina University, and in my first year, I couldn't get along with my housemate, my roommate. So I rented a little room for ten dollars a month off campus with a bunch of art students and psychology majors. In fact, I was a psychology major. But one of the people in the group, uh, Dudley Cole, or in the house, went to a fiddlers' convention and begged some lady to show him how to clog. And he came back to the house, and for a while we ignored him because he looked like he was afflicted or something. (laughs) (laughs) Doing the stance that none of us had ever seen. But after a while, he kept doing it, sounding like a drum with his feet, and so eventually we were all doing it. And basically that led to... um, us getting together and 
um, being found by this lady, uh, Betty Casey, who got us our first gig. And from that first gig, people just started calling us to perform here and there. One of the most unique things about the Greengrass Cloggers, though, is, again, that we were a multi-ethnic group. And that was pretty much unheard of in the clogging, um, team clogging world. And um, so from that, we had a Korean girl, a Native American family dancing with us, me being a black person. And um, I think that a lot of that pretty much contributed to our claim to fame in that we didn't look, we weren't homogenized and we didn't look like everybody else that we danced against. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and from that, I um, remember vividly in 1975, we were dancing in Evergreen Valley, Maine. Now get this. It was Alice Cooper, Sills and Crofts, Blue Oyster Calls, <laughs> and Jefferson Airplane, and the Green Grass Cloggers. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and very unusual mix, but the crowd went crazy when we got up and danced. But um, I was sitting in the green room, and I saw uh, Papa John Creech, an old black man who played with Little Feet and Jefferson Airplane, and he played violin. But sitting in the green room, he was just sitting in the corner playing it as a fiddle. And that was my very first encounter with seeing a black person play the instrument as a fiddle. Mm. And I saw that and I said to myself, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and what followed was miraculously uh, that following Christmas, my best friend at the time gave me a fiddle that belonged to her brother-in-law's uncle's grandfather. <laughs> and it had been ordered through the Sears and Roebuck catalog a hundred plus years wow. prior. Wow. And they said I could use it. And my life changed at, at that point. <laughs> no going back. Yeah, no going back. <laughs> That's for sure. And so mm -hmm. what was... Um, there was also a story that I've heard you tell about first being introduced to old time music. When you were with the Greengrass Cloggers, originally you were mostly performing with them like for bluegrass, bluegrass things, right? right. Yep. And so was it the Galax Fiddlers? Or? It, yes. Okay. <laughs> we were, again, um, we're gay being hired by all of the big bluegrass festivals. And we were in between festivals and was heading, I guess, from south, heading north, and we were on 81, and we saw a sign that said, Galax Fiddler's Convention, world's oldest fiddler's convention. And we had time, so we pulled off in our bus and pulled into the festival grounds. <laughs> and our usual was we grab our dancing boards, peel off the bus, and go and look for the biggest bluegrass jam and throw our boards down and start dancing. Well, we did that. But in between the tunes from the bluegrass players in one section of this um, uh, fairground, you could hear <laughs> and we were like, what is that? <laughs> and so a couple of us grabbed our boards and went to look for that sound and what we found was way tucked way back in the corner of the festival grounds was uh these uh uh livestock stalls and sitting outside of livestock stalls were people like tommy Jarrell and fred cochran and and they were playing old-time music mm -hmm. and literally we threw our boards down and started dancing and then we look around and there was this group of people <laughs> now we were used to bluegrass bands and they'd all stand with like maybe three feet between the musicians and they'd stand in a circle and as they play, each instrument had their little 40 second spiel. Well, we saw this other group and they were standing shoulder to shoulder <laughs> and they were all bouncing up and down and their eyes were rolling back and their tongues were hanging out. <laughs> and we were like, 
wow that and they sounded really really good and we put our boards down and started dancing to that and it was an instant marriage between the Greengrass cloggers and old time music <laughs> and we never looked back and from that point forward then we started getting hired for mostly folk festivals like the philadelphia folk festival the mariposa uh, folk festival in toronto and basically you know dance primarily old time music and that's how I ended up coming to it, and that's how a bunch of the other people who were on the group actually start, uh, came to it as well. Um, I, along with 13 other people, dropped out of college to be, uh, we call it, call ourselves starving cloggers <laughs> <laughs> because there was not a lot of money in it. There was a lot of travel, and we danced pretty much all over the world just doing our green grass clogger stuff. How many years were you part of that group? Oh, I danced for 17 years. Oh, wow. 17 years. And they're still going, right? They're still going. In fact, 2000, last year was the 50 year anniversary of the Greengrass Cloggers. Wow. And uh, currently they're still uh, based out of, uh, well, it got to the point where there was so much demand for our dancing that we split up into a home team and a road team. And the home team is still based in Greenville, North Carolina, and the road team is currently still based in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, road te- home team did more local stuff. Road team did, you know, more traveling. And clogging has roots in African traditions and also American Indian traditions, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's um, So when you actually break it down and when you look at clogging as a true um, traditional American dance form, well, it's a melding of these ethnic ethnicities and nationalities in that um, the Native Americans did more of what they called buck dancing. So in the dance itself, they had more high kicks, more um, uh, hopping and, and jumping in that respect. Um, the Scott Irish in the clogging, when you hear the really distinct beats, that's where that aspect of the clogging is coming from. And what the Africans uh, contributed to it was what we call flat footing. So they were dancing more in the dirt, had more brushes and more slides, less um, concentration on uh, on the percussive or um, uh, distinct beats. So it's like uh, the Scotch-Irish, English, they were on their toes. The Africans were on their heels. <laughs> that we were bringing it down to earth mm-hmm. as such. So Interesting. Adrian. <laughs> yes. I'm interested. So we've heard a lot about Earl. I'm interested in hearing about how you got involved in um, this type of music. And how did you end up here? Because you're not from here, meaning Virginia. I'm not from Virginia, no. I actually grew up in Wisconsin, but when I was 18, moved to the West Coast. And after living in a few different places, I ended up in Portland. And um, they happened to have a really thriving old-time scene in Portland. And my good friend... Um, that I hit it off with right away. We, we became roommates, and she was learning square dance calling. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this gentleman, Bill Martin, who was kind of the old-time guru in <laughs> Portland, and he was teaching a bunch of folks dance calling. So it ended up having this really thriving square dance scene where all ages and all types of people, like all these punk rock kids, and like all, all, all just this big mix of people would come together weekly for these big square dances, and I just totally fell in love with it, and then discovered, you know, the after the square dances or after the concerts, there'd be these house parties, and people would, like Earl said, just sit in tight little circles and play music all night, and there'd just be like these throbbing <laughs> little pods of people all over playing, and I was totally want to do that (laughs) and so um you know I was in my early 20s I guess when I started playing guitar and um and how I met Earl was our a good mutual friend Michael's Mario um invited Earl to come 
play for a square dance. And uh, shortly after that, everyone in Portland went to Weezer, Idaho for this um, fiddle, Fiddler's Convention. And Earl was there, and that's where we met. <laughs> in Weezer, Idaho. In Stickerville. <laughs> right. Because the bluegrassers always get, like, the shiny RV area, and the old-timers get, you know, like, the horse stalls. And, like, and the Stickerville area. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I was doing a uh, cross-country music tour at that point, and Portland was my first stop. And although she lived in Portland, I didn't meet you in Portland. No. I think that would that would be good. I I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more because I just I think it's for our audience in particular the distinction between old time music and bluegrass may not be very clear for many mm-hmm. people and so you spoke a little bit about the the distinction um but i wondered if you could say a little bit more i mean like adrian you were just saying you know the bluegrass folks they had the shiny rv area <laughs> and the old time music folks are by the horse stalls like <laughs> <laughs> some of the like diff- some of that sort of cultural differences too oh yes very much so old time music well, yeah. I mean, almost every if you go to the Mount Airy Fiddlers Convention, you go to the Gaylax Fiddlers Convention, go to Weezer Idaho Convention. Yeah. Uh, yes, there's a very, very large distinction, <laughs> and um, it's almost like um, uh, all the old time people were the hippies, and the bluegrass people were more the the straights, as, as <laughs> <laughs> and. Because, again, at all these festivals, they were the ones that were in the Winnebago's and the campers and the big campers and, and whatnot. And, you know, as Adrian pointed out, all the old-time people were in tents or camping out in the stalls. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and again, it, as I pointed out earlier, even in the music, you know, the old-time people are knee-to-knee. They're, like, standing close to each other. And the bluegrass were always... You know, more spaced out in their presentation. Another big distinction too is old time music was never really um, uh, a performance uh, orient, oriented music. It was more played in person's porch in their living room or, or playing for dances, uh, playing for square dances. Whereas um, in that evolution of the music because bluegrass did pretty much evolve from the old time music. And but it evolved as more of an entertaining uh, flash presentation. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, put your audience in awe right. by right. showing my technical uh, <laughs> licks on my fiddle. <laughs> and there's but only for 40 seconds, right? Yeah, right. For 40 seconds. You got 40 seconds and that's it. <laughs> Um, and it, it makes me laugh because what you said in there about the fiddle rules, I remember a, a lesson that I had with you early on when I wanted you to show, tell me, because I don't know very many songs. I mean, uh-huh. you said, you, you know, 500. Um, <laughs> and, the, and I grew up playing classical violin, so I'm even more at a disadvantage because like the sheet music thing was my crutch. And so trying to figure out how I could play with other people it was such a barrier and I asked you I said you know can you just tell me what to do so like if I'm in a crowd of people I can play and you gave me the craziest look and you were like you can't on a fiddle you can't just play along the fiddle's the boss yeah. <laughs> you have to you know you have to be the one leading the song like, oh, that's right <laughs> Well, I guess that means I'm going to have to take lessons from you, too, and not just let my son take a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you are here on this podcast today because this is part of a series that we have for our Standpoints podcast, which is based in the class that uh, Shannon and I teach, Making All Black Lives Matter. And so I want to hear a little bit from you about what is it about the music that you play, what is it about, what is it about clogging um, historically um, as well as contemporarily that is important for black people to know about um, 
particularly because I've heard you mention that black people were seen um, as fa- as as nameless faces in history playing this music, which is usually associated more with um, Appalachia and Appalachia is associated in the imagination of the American folks as white. And I know that's a long kind of comment question, but (laughs) (laughs) could you tell me a little bit more about why does it matter um, that we see folks like you, Earl, um, doing this work? Well, I I think it matters because, um, again, there's been a long road of which, you know, black Americans have had a immense contribution to the making and the shaping of this music. But again, there's been no recognition. And as you just pointed out, you know, when you, most people think of Appalachia, you know, they don't think about, you know, the blacks and the natives that live here and that have thrived here. Uh, it's, it's only the white aspect of Appalachia. Well, in the same sense, what makes motivates me to get out there and spread the music and try to be seen is that when teaching and sharing this music, especially to young people, if they can see themselves represented, they would have more, um, uh, potentially have more interest and desire to be a part. But if they don't see themselves represented, then, yeah. Um, I mean, the countless you know, black children, kids that I've have encountered at schools. And again, it's a, a knowledge base that they're just totally unaware of. And the only way to make them or be aware of it is to, to, to keep it present. And that's what I try to do. That's what I do with my presentation in terms of um, informing from an educational standpoint. It's not a matter of shoving it or exploiting it, but saying, hey, this is something that I think if you get into it, it's really, really cool and you'll yeah. really like it. You know? yeah. And it's great you know, because oh, like Adrian and I were uh, teaching at the um, um, Junior Appalachian Musicians Program in Floyd when we first moved here. And again, there were, you know, what I think there was other apart from our kids, there was one other black child um, in the program. And but even though in the Floyd, Virginia area, there's a uh, small uh, uh, black community, but you know they don't frequent um, a lot of the activity that happens there. And again, to me, the answer is because they're not seeing themselves represented. And part of our goal and part of the Big Indian Farm goal is to um, to change that. We sponsored a show um, oh, a month yeah. ago. Oh, yeah. oh, we called it uh, Winter Blues, where I had um, a bunch of longtime friends of mine come and descended on Floyd and played the blues. <laughs> and it was a first for Floyd, you know. But it was a sellout show because Floyd in particular has a lot of people like us who move there from other places and we're used to um, differences in different uh, uh, ethnic groups and nationalities in our community. Um, Prior to that, in November, we played a show and we had my friend um, Sheikh Kahamala Dabede, who's from Mali. And... We had him come and play, and the title of the show was From Mali to Appalachia. So we were tying that, um, that uh, the similarities of the music of Mali and how you can hear it reflected in the music of Appalachia. And, uh, and it was fantastic. It was a sellout. You know, so, again, just doing things is important to, to have it out there and to to basically inform people. Yeah, because representation just matters so much. I mean, Appalachia has been painted as this monolithically white space, and it's not, and it has never been. Right. But, um, and and I think that's, you know, 
a lot of your talk this morning really showed how the erasure of the roots of a lot of this music is harmful, not only because it's not giving credit to the people who actually taught many of the mm. people who got credit for the music, but it's also, you know, not painting a truthful picture of what this region is about and what the history of this region is. Right, very much so. And that's, again, part of our goal. You know, AJ and I have talked about it. You know, when we first bought our farm, we thought, oh, we could start an eco-village. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and then we went to Floyd and there was, a big, there was an eco-village. <laughs> <laughs> But there was, was way more Plus grandiose up. than uh, what, <laughs> what we had considered. But, um, um, you know, being a part of the, uh, in the Floyd County um, community and the community beyond, because, you know, in this part of Virginia, we're st we're, even though we live there, we're still part of the Blacksburg community, mm -hmm. the Christiansburg community, we're still part of that community. So again, when I look around and I see the diversity in that community, but I, I see the um, see that a lot of that diversity is underrepresented, then Big Indian Farm, through my travels throughout the world and from being an, a performer and having met just performers from every corner of the world who are my friends, I want to bring my friends <laughs> here because they do re will reflect um and hopefully bring out more people in the community mm -hmm. that yeah i want to know who are your favorite favorite old-time music or musicians who have influenced your work we we got a chance to see some of the folks in history um, today earlier in class, um, which was fascinating. And I'm not sure if your favorites are among those, but I want to hear who are your favorites and why. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I thought I was Tommy Gerald for a while. <laughs> you know, he's considered the grandfather of old time music um, out of. Um, uh, uh, from why well, he's deceased now, but he was from around the Mount Airy, North Carolina area. Um, when I was uh, first starting to play the fiddle, um, again, it, initially I was just a dancer, and but I was always inspired by and just infatuated with the fiddle because I, it, it looked like something that was very difficult. <laughs> How do you do that? It has no frets on it. <laughs> you know, so um, out of that, I started mostly just listening. Tommy Gerald was my idol for a while because um, I liked the sounds that he made. Um, I started listening to the uh, um, a band called The Horseflies. Uh, one of my favorite fiddlers is Judy Hyman. My favorite banjo players uh, who played in the same group was Richie Stearns. Um, we have a good friend who's actually a banjo player in, in my band, called, um, the Earl White String Band, uh, Mark Olitsky. Um, I listen to um, the Cork Lickers. <laughs> they were a favorite band back in the day. And a lot of these were bands that were that were that toured and um and then we met the martin bogan and armstrong group and i really love what they were what they did um uh it was an all-black group uh with Hart, howard armstrong um so in my playing you know i've of all the people that i have had an affinity for their playing so my playing has more of a mixture of of all of the people that that I really enjoyed, um, and a lot of it was just the way they expressed themselves through their instrument and the way it would touch me. And in a similar sense, when I'm playing, especially if we're playing a dance, you know, I look out on the dance floor and I lock in on the 
people who are dancing to the music <laughs> because a lot of people don't dance to the music. <laughs> uh, not, <laughs> I call them non-dancers. <laughs> but I found that locking into that person and then you could see that symbiotic relationship where they are reacting to your music and then you're reacting to them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who'd you learn circle bowing from? Uh, circle bowing. Oh my God. And can you tell people what that is? Yes. Yes. Okay. And it's really hard for those of us who grew up playing violin. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what Shannon described as circle bowing, um, I have a friend, Nancy Nehammer, who took, uh, Tommy Jarrell and Nancy was one of these people where, you know, if it was a piece of paper, she would pick it apart until she found the wood in it (laughs) you know so what um she did was took tommy and put him in a room and put a light on each end of his bow and turned out the light and recorded him playing and what when you watch that video what you see is his bow is doing circles and it's doing figure eights and it's basically doing all these circles to get that sound Versus, and I say uh, comparatively, as I <laughs> describe this, Shannon, you don't want to saw on it. Well, <laughs> saw is just basically going back and forth, you know, so what this circle does. And that difference, too, is um, if you ever watched um, Irish Fiddlers, and again, it's all about that drone. It's all about getting that continuous, ooh, and then having the notes dance around that. And you can't get that if you're going, you can't get that from sawing on it. Yeah. And something else I think is really, I love the way you describe old time music as being about um, really, it's about doing it for a long period of time, sitting there and, and playing for long periods of time and building community, you know, with the people you're, you're mm-hmm. playing with. But, um, but I think that's something else that's so striking is like you, you also, your body has to adjust to, for playing long periods of time. You can't hold your arm up like a classical <laughs> right. violinist would, right? You have uh-huh. to hold it down lower and you have to, you know, kind of keep your arms and elbows down a little bit more so that you don't lose your your endurance right, you know, right, as, right. as quickly for sure yeah and again it's it, it's about getting into a groove you know and you know like when I first started playing you know listening to the old guys you know they would tell you straight up you know um, none of them would prescribe a particular and a certain way to hold your instrument they don't say always they all all said to me well just hold it in a way that makes you feel more comfortable mm-hmm. kind of like holding your wife <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> and and literally you know i've said you know once you attain that with your instrument you know, and that fiddler's high that I was talking about, where you're you're one with that instrument, and you know, I was telling <laughs> to this guy once, I think I broke a string on my fiddle, and he says, "Here, use mine," and I was like playing it, but it just wasn't <laughs> clicking, you know. And I said, "Dude, uh, no, I'm just going to put my string on because playing somebody else's fiddle is like playing with somebody else's wife." <laughs> And it is. Not that I play with other people's wives, but. (laughs) So. Back it up. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So, Adrian. (laughs) Um, You've mentioned, both of you have mentioned Big Indian Farm. Um, several times uh, in this recording. And so I wanted to hear a little bit more about Big Indian Farm and how it is instrumental to um, your music um, and your and your work. Particularly, I want to hear you talk about the Fiddler's Jam. You want to start with that? No, my name is not Adrian. Yeah. Oh, yes, me. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, well, we, um, 
you know, we knew early on when we got together that we really wanted to find um, a big piece of land where we could, you know, settle and something that would facilitate um, gatherings and, um, you know, certain aspects of being sustainable. And (laughs) we had a whole list of requirements, but, um, you know, we narrowed our search down to Floyd. We had some friends that lived in the area and, you know, really encouraged us to check it out and when we came we just both really loved the area and we spent many years looking for the perfect piece of land and um and this particular piece we got was initially sort of out of our range but then we were ready to make a move in the place that we've been watching had already sold so we were back to <laughs> like just sold the week before and our second one sold too. Yeah, hadn't you been camping there? Like we we were at Clifftop actually in West Virginia at the big and but like go in the tent and try to look at properties. <laughs> and um but yeah, when we walked onto this particular piece, we just loved it. It was, you know, beautiful. It kinda had all those things we wanted, spring water and beautiful bold creek and areas to camp along the creek and but um yeah so we didn't live there right away but we started the fiddler's jam is it the ninth year this year is that what you said the ninth ninth and so you know we'd come in the summer and get the place ready (laughs) run some portalettes (laughs) set up some tents and um and it's kind of evolved from there and and um you know last year we had our first a small music camp it's real intimate it was wonderful and um you know we have the bakery on the property which is nice to have that big kitchen space so we're able to serve up all of our local farmer friends food and (laughs) and baked goods and um got you know wonderful teachers and so yes we just have this vision of creating doing more the fiddler's jam we do every year and that's in july it's um Kind of friends of friends of friends <laughs> it's just by donation um and we just come together and yeah everyone helps out with the meals and um comes together for that and other than that just plays music we don't organize any type of structured concerts or anything like that but um always music happening and impromptu events <laughs> going on um Waiting in the creek. Waiting in the creek, yeah. It's all ages. People bring their families. It's Last year was particularly wonderful. It's like a really great group of kids from little, you know, one, three to teenagers, and they would get great games going on at night and tag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to come last year. Shannon invited me. Yeah. Oh, son, you should have come. Yeah, my son ended up with Lyme disease. Oh, so no. We had a, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I I really wanted to come. Well, um, Shannon had said it was a great, great event this year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah yes. another yeah part of that evolution with um, the Big Indian Farm too is that yeah as I noted earlier I've spent a lot of time um, doing a lot of traveling and performing and playing and teaching at other people's camps, and so. You know, again, in our search for property, that was one of the things that we also are trying to build infrastructure to, instead of going out so much, but more or less having people come to us. So part of what we're trying to do with the Big Indian Farm is um, is um, have events. We are planning to do farm-to-table dinners. We're looking at building cabins and, you know, providing a refuge for people who want to escape from Blacksburg (laughs) 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 and come out and you know pick eggs and (laughs) watch the chickens and and the sheep and another thing that um, so apart from the music another thing that we're trying to do too is well another thing that I have noticed and have been aware of for a long time is that um, you know black people don't camp and you know and and there's a yeah and but there's a reason for that you know having gone and spent many um 
X amount of time in campgrounds. And what you don't see a lot of time is people of color. And I think part of that is because of that um, diminished level of comfort mm-hmm. there. Not being, feeling welcome. Not feeling, right, exactly. So that's another role or goal of the Big Indian Farm is to provide a space where you know, people of color, people of, you know, of whatever walk of life can come in and find comfort in being able to be in nature. And that's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's necessary. Now, black people need to get back to nature. <laughs> I do agree with that. Uh, my, my son, my husband and I, uh, my son was in the Cub Scouts and they had camp and we went and we were the only, I mean, there were hundreds of people and we were the only people, black people at the camp. Wow. And um, we slept there for a night and then the next day I was like, can we go? <laughs> and we left because uh-huh. I just did not feel comfortable. Right. You know, my son was maybe like seven, eight. And mm-hmm. he was, I mean, it doesn't bother him. You know, he was there enjoying, but I felt so mm. uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So that mm. I'm ready. I'm ready for mm-hmm. it. <laughs> There are, I mean, our colleague Kwame Harrison writes about, um, because he's he's a skier, and Mm -hmm. so skiing while black is also, uh, um, you know, people don't expect to see him in this white space. And the same thing with national parks. Um, There's a great book, I think it's called um, Black Faces, White Spaces, but it's about um, just the exclusion that... Mm -hmm people of color especially black people feel in these um outdoor spaces that have been sort of labeled as white spaces and it's i mean it's the same thing that you see with the labeling of appalachia as this white space and so um yeah so i think i think it's so important for that those Mm. stereotypes to be undone because oh very much so yeah yeah so um another question i had is about the future. I usually like to talk a little bit about the future. Um, what do you think is the place for old time music going forward? Um, and do you see yourself as being a part of that? Yes. I see myself as being a part of moving forward and I'm basically making an effort to be instrumental in being one of the drivers <laughs> to move and keep it <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right <laughs> and um and yeah so when you look at that future aspect of it again i gotta refer back to big indian farm and what we feel our purpose and one of our goals to be uh i just did a gig was it last weekend two weekends ago in Baltimore um, and you know what I got to do is what I do and, and but I got to talk to other people of color who approached me and said wow you know I never knew uh, <laughs> about square dancing you know I never yeah and this woman in particular was just ecstatic about seeing me play because you know she'd been going this was the third annual and you know she'd been going and never saw any black people and said, this has got to be something. It's got to be, you know, black people has got to be affiliated with this. (laughs) So she came to my presentation and was just, again, just excited about the fact that, you know, it wasn't an anomaly. It is something that was part of our culture and part of, you know, that. So, of course, I told her about the Big Indian Farm <laughs> and said, you know, tell other people that you know and look us up. And I, we just recently applied for a grant. We didn't get it with um, the uh, International Bluegrass Music Association, IBMA. Well, um, I forget the woman's name, the black woman who is uh, directing one aspect of it. But they started what they called the Arnold Schultz Fund. Now, Arnold Schultz was one of the people I talked about in my presentation who um, I was made reference to by Bill Monroe many years ago. And, but part of what they are also trying to do is highlight 
the uh, the involvement and the contribution that blacks had to bluegrass music mm-hmm. and um, and again I applauded them and wrote them a long um, book <laughs> <laughs> about what we were trying to do at the Big Indian Farm and then applied for their grant we didn't get it but she highly encouraged us to apply again mm-hmm. uh, next year and um, part of what we're doing also is through our music camps um, we're working with the Virginia um, Pat Folk no yeah yeah Folk Life uh, no Folk Life Folk Life organization and we're working also with the Crooked Road and one of our ways of getting uh, it, or moving it into the future and infecting more people with it is that um, uh, we're making scholarships available for inner city kids. Mm, that's great. And, um, and so, you know, whatever way we can get more kids taught, and this is where the uh, IBMA comes in as well because they do have scholarships. So, being that we didn't get the grant, she directed us to if we had any uh, people of color who applied for the grant to take the um, any of the um, instructions at our camp to point them in her direction. So, Great. so I think the future is bright. Yeah, the future is bright. And and again, from doing stuff like this, it, it's all about information and all about people knowing about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and giving credit to the people who the famous white folks learned their songs from. (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly, totally. I mean, I think that was something that was just so striking about your presentation, and I'm sure there's many others, you know, that that weren't mentioned that, you know, those... Oh, yeah, countless. it's, It's enraging, honestly, to, you know, to see that the people who whose creative and intellectual property, you mm-hmm. know, was shared and they mm-hmm. shared it, you right. know, and then it was appropriated and used to make money, you know, right. it's it right. is a really hard thing to see. Yeah. So thank you for the work that you're doing to, <laughs> you know, you're try welcome. to correct that. Well, my last question is, um, what, if you had, I mean, our audience, um, I'm going to assume, or let's assume that our audience knew nothing about what we were talking about for the last, I don't know, hour. Um, if you had to say one thing that our audience should walk away with regarding old time music, fiddling, big Indian farm, fiddler's jam, sustainable everything. I don't know, choose something <laughs> that we talked about today, the, the the future of old time music. What would be the one thing you would want our audience to walk away with, both you, Earl, and you, Adrian? What I love about old time music is seeing um, how it's just, I feel like it's the people's music. It's like this community music that you can... Have being a jam with, you know, teenagers up to, you know, 70, 80 year olds and everyone's playing together and cracking jokes and having a really good time. And um, yeah, I think, you know, it's really accessible to a lot of people. And often when you're asking Earl, who is kind of his heroes are, who we really admire what I really love about old time music is you can often, you know, sit in a jam with those people mm. and meet your heroes yeah. <laughs> and, and they're really accessible and hum- humble and, um, and just the dance associated with it and everything that, um, you know, I, I really love what Earl's doing, building the awareness that just think it is something that, you know, it's just accessible, it should be accessible for everybody. And it's, um, kind of like church you know it just brings everyone together and it's just really beautiful um it's a really beautiful thing i love it it's great (laughs) and we want to foster that big indian farm (laughs) that's right (laughs) um well i guess the 
one thing which is actable, actually uh, multiple. <laughs> it's hard for me to bring it I down know, to one, one, but thing. I will. <laughs> but I'd say, um, you know, just to share an experience that I had, it's like, you know, when I started this, um, I was talking about my infatuation with the Mountain Dew commercial. <laughs> well, again, you know, I had cousins and other relatives who basically thought I was crazy, you know, before <laughs> liking that type of music. And, um, you know, and it's because they saw it as a white music, which that was the only picture that we were ever shown. And, um, you know, so the thing I would say is just keep an open mind, keep an open mind. Yeah. You know, try to show an appreciation for all kinds of music, mm-hmm. and um, you know, because m- music is a bridge; it can bring people together. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, you know, keep an eye out for any information coming out of the Big Indian Farm, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, you know, put that boombox away, and make an effort to learn to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, because most of these this music came out of people playing. They didn't have the radio. They didn't have, you know, tapes. They didn't have cassette. They, it wasn't easy to just go and plop music into a device and play it. Um, it was born out of, you know, the spirit of making music. So mm-hmm. any opportunity, go out and learn an instrument. <laughs> That's great. What's your website, your Big Indian Farms website? It's BigIndianFarm.com. Easy enough? Easy. You know what I learned? The fiddle is boss. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Earl. Thank you, Adrian, Thank for you so joining us on Standpoints. Thank you so much to our guests, Earl White and Adrian Davis. And thank you for listening. And a special thanks to my co-host for this episode, Shannon Bell. I'm your host, Andrea Baldwin. We recorded our conversation with Earl and Adrian in April of 2022 at the Solitude House on the Virginia Tech campus. To learn more about our podcast and stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Standpoints Pod and on Twitter at StandpointsPod1. Standpoints is produced in association with Virginia Tech Publishing. Our producer is Joe Fort, and our production assistant is Jenea Amore. For more information about podcasts produced by Virginia Tech Publishing, please visit publishing.vt.edu and choose podcasts from the drop-down menu. Our theme music was arranged by Prince Predator with vocals by Aura Cadet. I'm Andrea Baldwin. Please join us again on the Standpoints Podcast.